0: W-262-CP, Bayonet Point, W-T-B-N, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: So there is a type of righteousness that's unacceptable to God. What he means is that righteousness the Pharisees and scribes had were merely outward religious trappings that had nothing to do with the heart. It was religious external behavior, not something that was internal because of a changed heart.
2: We can try to act like we are good people, but if God has not changed our hearts, it is just a masquerade that God sees right through. Today on Verse by Verse... Pastor Steve takes us further in our study on the Sermon on the Mount and we will be considering the concept of righteousness. There are different kinds of righteousness and that is our subject today. If you have your Bible handy, turn to Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. Here is Pastor Steve.
1: It is customary in certain parts of China for food and water to be laid in the casket of a recently deceased individual. This no doubt, goes back to pagan and superstitious beliefs. But what would we find if we dug up that casket in a few days? We might find some worms and insects enjoying the food and water, but we would certainly find that the food and water would be unused by the corpse, right? And the reason is obvious. Dead people don't hunger and thirst anymore. Hungering and thirsting is something that is reserved, uniquely reserved, for the living. Likewise, in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying for several weeks now, Jesus revealed that citizens of his kingdom are are also marked by a hunger and a thirst for something that is uniquely reserved for them. No one else is interested, no one craves it, no one longs for it, no one is even remotely interested or no one else is remotely interested in it, let alone uh, have an appetite for it. And what is it that we long for? What is it that we crave? What is it that we thirst? Well, Jesus spelled it out in the fourth beatitude. I'd like you to turn there to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus said in the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We've been saying for several weeks that the Beatitudes follow a a certain pattern. Like each preceding Beatitude, this one also follows a pattern. It has a logical order and a sequence that follows the the normal progression of a Christian's life and experience with Christ. First, the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives, and he reveals to us our sin. That's called conviction. We, We realize for the first time that we are poor in spirit, That we're not just poor spiritually, we're we're dirt poor spiritually. We have nothing, poverty-stricken, destitute sinners. We have absolutely no righteousness, no merit to present ourselves to God. And once we realize this, and that's why the first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But once we recognize this, we move to the second beatitude. And that is we mourn over our sin. The second beatitude is about grieving Verse verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We mourn over our sins. We grieve over our sins because we realize that we're not just a little sinful. We're totally sinful. We're dominated by sin. We're slaves to sin. There's a a total corruption of heart. There's a total wickedness in our lives and, and it impacts and permeates and infects every area of our lives as well as every relationship that we have in life. And so in brokenness and in repentance, we come to God seeking his merciful forgiveness that's found only in Jesus Christ. And and what happens when we seek him, we come to him for forgiveness? He grants us that forgiveness. He'll never turn us away because Jesus himself said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will never cast away. And in the Greek language, that's very emphatic. I will never, ever, ever, cast away. There's not even a thought of that. And so that's how we enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we humble ourselves. We come with crushed hearts, broken hearts, bowing low before Christ as king, admitting that we are vile sinners, wretched people who deserve only the eternal wrath and judgments of God. Now, all of this is quite humbling. It's quite humbling. That's why Jesus said you must be, if you're gonna be converted, you have to come as a little child, a humble little child. Because for the first time ever, we we see ourselves for what we really are, unworthy sinners who have absolutely no rights. No rights at all. We deserve nothing but hell itself. Therefore, one of the initial fruits of salvation is that we stop insisting on getting our way. We stop that. We become, as Jesus said in the third beatitude, meek or gentle he said blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth we're meek and, and gentle towards other people towards other people you see in coming to christ not only are we humbled before god but we're now humbled before people we're humbled in the sense that that we recognize the truth about ourselves no longer do we insist on getting our own way no longer do we become defensive people because we realize now for the first time we have nothing to defend if somebody accuses us of being sinful, we have to agree with them. And we have to say, in essence, in our hearts, uh, you may accuse me of this, but you don't even know half the picture. I'm far worse than this. And so we uh, we stop fighting others. We stop defending ourselves as people who never do anything wrong. We now know better than that. The question is, what do we do that's right? More appropriately, and what do we do that's wrong? And so upon entering the kingdom as poor, grieving uh, meek sinners, not only does our king forgive us, but he, he does what what the Bible refers to as a miraculous work. It's the new birth. The new birth, the, the Bible's term for the new birth, in addition to that term, is regeneration. That's a very important concept. Regeneration essentially means that that God now gives you his life he puts inside of you. Being born again has nothing to do with uh, you, you're coming back from a sport injury or you're a uh, you're uh anything that you're re- on the rebound, I feel born again. Being born again means that God has, has put his life within you. Peter puts it in Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four. He says that he has given you a divine nature. That's that's remarkable. The moment you trust Christ for salvation, God does an internal work in your hearts by giving us a new nature. We become new creatures in Christ. We're not reformed on the outside where just there's a reformation. We have been regenerated on the inside. He changes us internally so that, watch this, now our character is in the process of becoming like Christ. That's a lifelong process. The Bible calls that sanctification, progressive sanctification. But that's where it begins. You receive a new nature and your character is now being conformed by the Lord into the very image of his son. That takes place all of our lives, and then we go when we go to be with the Lord, it instantaneously is completed, and we are perfect in his sight and and in and in reality we are we're we're like Christ in character, and though we still struggle now with our sin as regenerated citizens of the kingdom, we now begin as those who are citizens within his kingdom we we now take on new attitudes, things that that we never had before we were saved, we have new attitudes, different attitudes, godly attitudes, godly ambitions, Godly desires, those still that struggle with sin is there, but now, in addition to our struggle with sin, we have new desires, new ambitions, new goals, new objectives, new values which we never had before, new morals and new pursuits that that we weren 't interested in it was it was foreign and foreign to us, and the major pursuit becomes this pursuit of righteousness. That is the major pursuit of our lives. We pursue righteousness. And that's why Jesus said in this fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they, and he means they alone shall be satisfied. Now I find this fascinating and and we all should. It's fascinating because the very thing that as rebellious, bankrupt sinners, we once lacked and had absolutely no interest in, righteousness, now we, we hunger and thirst for it. Now we can't get enough of it. Before our conversion, it was a non-issue, right? A non-issue, true righteousness I'm talking about. Real obedience. We, and, in fact, the Bible says that we weren't even capable of pursuing righteousness before we were saved. For we were hostile towards God. Hostile. But now, we can't get enough of it as citizens of, of his kingdom. It becomes the driving force of our lives. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to explore this fourth beatitude. We want to go beneath the surface and we want to dig into this and find out by asking several questions what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness and how does it apply to our lives? We want to ask three questions this morning. What kind of righteousness was Jesus referring to? that's that's critical if you don't understand this you don't know what you're supposed to pursue secondly what does it really mean to hunger and thirst for this righteousness and the third question is what is the result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness so let's begin by asking and answering the first question that that unravels and opens up this uh this fourth beatitude it says what kind of righteousness was our lord referring to here it's obvious that the key word in the fourth beatitude is the word righteousness. If you unlock the meaning of this term, you will unlock the meaning of the beatitude because that's the main point of it. This is the first time that we're we're reading about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first time Jesus has mentioned it, but it is certainly not the last time. In fact, the concept of righteousness is found throughout this sermon. In fact, you could say that it is one of the, if not the major theme of the sermon. For example, in chapter 5, verse 10, just a few verses down, it's really the the last beatitude. Verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So believers are persecuted for righteousness. In chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus tells us what is unacceptable righteousness, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, those who were religious Jewish groups, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is a type of righteousness that's unacceptable to God. What he means is that it's a the righteousness the Pharisees and scribes had were merely outward religious trappings that had nothing to do with the heart. It was religious external behavior, not something that was internal because of a changed heart. In chapter six. Verse one, Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So Jesus said that righteousness, though it stems from pure motives and it does start with the right attitudes, actually expresses itself in specific action. There is a way of practicing righteousness, not to be seen by people, but it's going to issue out in specific behavior. And perhaps the The crescendo to the the whole sermon is found in chapter 6, verse 33. After telling these folks, don't live for food, don't live for clothing, don't live to pursue material goods, Jesus said in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you, meaning all the material things you need. That's not the priority of your life, material things, but the priority of your life is... Pursuing righteousness that's part of the kingdom. And so it's very clear from these verses that righteousness plays a critical role in a believer's life, right? Therefore, it is absolutely essential that we understand what kind of righteousness Jesus was referring to. You can't really hunger and thirst for it if you don't know what it is. And we need to think through this. We need to think through this because when the Bible speaks of righteousness as it relates to people, it can mean one of two things, depending on what group of people it's referring to. For example, the first kind of righteousness that the Bible speaks of in relation to people and the very first need that all of us have is what uh, I would call objective legal righteousness, Objective legal righteousness. This is the need of all unbelievers. We're born into this world having no righteousness of our own. That's why we're bankrupt sinners. Therefore, we need some type of righteousness to to be able to stand before God, who is perfectly holy, who will condemn us for our sins unless we have a legal righteousness on our record. We're not going to be holy, perfectly holy in this world. So we need a legal righteousness to stand before him. The Bible has a name for this legal righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. Imputed was an accounting term. It means that that it's reckoned to your account. Something that was someone else's is now placed or reckoned on your account. God, the moment you trust Christ, legally reckons Christ's righteousness to your account. You're not changed in behavior because of that directly. You don't subjectively feel this. In fact, most believers don't even know what's happened to them at the moment, but that's what happens. The legal righteousness of Jesus Christ who perfectly obeyed God, where we haven't, we've broken all of his laws, Jesus obeyed all of his laws, God takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to our account. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the cross. Jesus Christ in dying on the cross was was being made sin on our behalf. He was dying for, for the sins of his people. And the Bible says that when his people, when we individually come to him, here's what happens, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sins on the cross and he gives us his righteousness in a legal sense. Another name for this legal transaction is called justification. Justification means that God declares the guilty sinner righteous. It doesn't mean that we are righteous in the way we behave, but he declares us righteous. That's a legal righteousness. That's a legal transaction. Whether you feel like that's happened in your life as a believer or not, it has happened. It is something that God does on our behalf. This is is critical. I I believe it's so critical because most of the time when we present the gospel to people, we we leave this out. We tell them they, they can have their sins forgiven, and that's right. And we tell them they need to be born again, and that's right. But very rarely do we present the gospel the way the apostle Paul did. And the way Paul did is by showing people that they have no righteousness before a holy God. And then he presented the legal righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's found, for, for example, it's the heart of, of Paul's letter to the Romans. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is so, um, so very important. Paul has been building a case... From the very first start of his letter to the Romans to declare that everyone is sinful before a holy God, a perfectly righteous God. And then he says in verse 21 of Romans 3 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, meaning that that you can't get this by keeping the law. No one gets this righteousness because he's kept the law, because nobody has kept the law. He said it's being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament spoke of this. This isn't a New Testament doctrine alone. But it's an Old Testament doctrine amplified in the New Testament. He explains, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It, It simply means what we've been saying. God places the righteousness of Christ on the account of the person who trusts him. And I might add, this was the basis of and is the basis of saving individuals today as it was in the Old Testament. They weren't saved any, any in any different manner than, than we are. It's always been by grace through faith and God imputing his righteousness upon their account. Now, they may not have known and certainly didn't know all the details we know about Jesus Christ, but they understood that in the coming of the Messiah, there would be some provision by, by which God would take care of our sins, and they looked ahead. And one of the, the the men we're told who did look ahead was Abraham. Look at chapter four. This is Paul's illustration of this great truth. In chapter four, verse one, Paul says something that went against the grain of Jewish thinking. The the Jewish rabbis. and and they still do this, and and those who who write about this will say that Abraham was a notch above everybody else, that Abraham was was saved because he was such a righteous man. That's not true. Abraham was actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, he was actually a a pagan worshiper whom God saved. But notice chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then uh, what shall we say that Abraham, our fore, forefather, according to the flesh, has found? So, so if this salvation is by grace through faith, God puts his righteousness on our account. What about Abraham? Abraham that's so exalted. He says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. And that's true. If Abraham could stand before God and say, I have perfectly obeyed you, then the Bible says he could boast. But notice what Paul says, but not before God. Abraham can't do that. He says, what does the scripture say? See, that settles every argument. What does the scripture say? He goes back now to Genesis 15, verse six, and says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham lived 400 years before the giving of the law to Moses. He certainly couldn't be saved by the law and he didn't keep the, the unwritten law in his heart. He believed God and God credited to his account righteousness. And Paul says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what's due. If you're trying to earn your salvation by good works, it's not a gift. You work for a living, they give you a paycheck, it's not a gift. You've worked for that, but that's not the way salvation is. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Folks, this is, this is legal righteousness. And, and this is exactly what the apostle Paul found in his own life. He said in Philippians chapter three, that though he at one time was a self-righteous uh, Jewish religious rabbi, he gave it all up. He considered it all rubbish that he might have the righteousness of Jesus Christ on his account. But you know, sadly, to say that many people of his day, many of his contemporaries did not embrace Christ they, they tried to earn their salvation by good works, just like many people do today. I'd like you to look at Romans chapter nine. In Romans nine, verse 30, Paul has an astounding statement. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. What he's saying, he's writing in a section addressing God's dealings with the Jewish people. And he said, look, there are many Gentiles this day who have been given the righteousness of God in Christ. They, weren't atta- they, they didn't attain it by their own works. They weren't interested in it, but they have it. But why do the Jewish people not have it for the most part? Why do religious people not have it? Here you have pagans who do have God's righteousness on their record, but you have religious people who don't. Verse 31, but Israel pr- pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. If you wonder, why did the Jewish people of our Lord's day reject him? It's because they stumbled over this very issue. They stumbled over their need for righteousness. They, they were self-righteous. They didn't think they needed the righteousness of Christ. And they were self-righteous and they thought that if they just kept working at it and working at it, God would let them into his kingdom on that basis. And that's why chapter 10 says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning the Jewish people, is for their salvation. Don't think that Jewish people, because God made a covenant with them, they're all going to heaven. They're not. They're not unless they trust Christ, just like anybody, just like a Gentile. And Paul prayed for their salvation because they weren't saved apart from Christ and they're not saved apart from him. For I testify about them, he says, that they have a zeal for God. And, that, and that's true. If you've ever been around, there are no Pharisees today by that name, but if you've ever been around uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish people called the Hasidim, there is a zeal for God. There, there is an absolute zeal for God. But he says, but it's not according to not, with knowledge. It's, it's not based on biblical knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's, that's the issue. They did not submit themselves to God's righteousness that comes only through faith in Christ. And he says that in verse four, one of the great statements in all of scripture, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. A person who comes to Jesus Christ Understands that they have ceased striving to be righteous and they accept the righteousness of Christ that's given to them as a gift. That's what Paul says. So, you see, uh, many people today are just like that, trying to attain their own righteousness and, and they will fail miserably. And if they die in that condition, they will be lost forever. The only way to be right with God is by legally receiving Christ's righteousness. We disobey completely. Jesus obeyed completely. You trust Him, you get His righteousness imputed to us. That's the very foundation of the gospel, and I really believe that that ought to be emphasized when we share the gospel. I remember reading about George Whitfield, the great um, English evangelist of the uh, the Great Awakening. Uh, George Whitfield said, "For years I preached that you had to be born again, but now I'm emphasizing more justification, justification, that legal transaction." Now that's what—that's uh, the first type of righteousness that any of us need to know about because that's how a person is saved.
2: That legal transaction that Pastor Steve Kreloff just described is essential if we wish to gain eternal life. But is it the kind of righteousness Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? You'll need to join us for the next Verse by Verse to find out because our time for today has expired. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These radio adaptations of his messages are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries and made possible by the gifts and prayers of our listeners. You can learn more about this ministry.